Hi, I'm Elena Becker, and this is PS, the Puget Sound podcast, where I'll be talking with members of our community about their Puget Sound experiences. Today, we're recording from Moonyard Studio in Tacoma, Washington, and our guest is Vivi Wen, Director for Intercultural Engagement at Puget Sound. Vivi, thanks for joining me. Thank you for having me. Yeah, we are so pleased to have you. And I think I was doing a little bit of background research earlier today. Oh, my. Okay. And I, yeah. you, you've been at Puget Sound for three years now. Is that right? Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. It was my anniversary as of April 6th. Oh, my goodness. So yeah. just recently. Mm-hmm. Will you just talk a little bit about what the process of becoming a logger was like for you and how Puget Sound first got on your radar? Of course. Um, so our job processes can take several months. So they can take a long time. And I think for me, what appealed to to me throughout the search process was that people were very honest here and very authentic. Mm. And when it comes to diversity work, um, sometimes you don't get that. Right. right? <laughs> uh, universities may not be as forthcoming about what their growth areas are. And for me, UPS was exactly that. Hmm. Like, we are good, but we want to be great. And these are the areas where um, we could do with some more attention and some right. more work. And so in my personal, my professional life, I just appreciate honesty, authenticity, and a desire to grow. And that really resonated with me. And the more I got to know students on this campus and faculty and staff, that much is true across the board. And and to me, that's what a logger is, right? Mm. Somebody who is taking in multiple perspectives, who wants to better their environment, the people around them, ultimately themselves. Um, So I don't know if it's a matter of becoming a logger. My loyalties are always to like a people and not an institution. Mm. And just because that's just, you know, I'm not an alum. Right. Um, But but that's what keeps me is also the people. So I think for me, being a logger and becoming one is just gaining that trust and gaining that connection. Right. And your mm-hmm. job title is Director for Intercultural Engagement. Yes. Will you talk a little bit about what that actually means in terms of the work that you were doing on campus? Of course. I'll give you the jargony Perfect. answer, and then I'll give you my answer. Excellent. So, Typically, multicultural student services is is a typical title for the things that I do. And yet, the philosophy behind multicultural is that you have your culture, I have mine, right? Mm -hmm. Based on our different identities, based on our different heritage and and our our race or ethnic um, identity. And those things don't necessarily interact. Mm. But intercultural is just that, right? Right. It it is that you have something to learn from me and I have something to learn from you. And that may be different, but we could build connections based off of that. So that's what intercultural means as opposed to multicultural. For me, I think a big assumption is that I only serve a certain group of students. (laughs) And yet in my belief, it takes all of us right, to build an inclusive environment. So really, that's what I do. And it sounds so simple. Um, I, I train to be a therapist, and I still believe mm. this too. Yeah, interesting. Yeah. Uh, to an end is that, for me, it's about people being able to harness their own potential, hmm. right, and to see themselves as beautiful and worthy and valid. And there are things that get in the way of that. 
for me, some of those things are systemic, right? right? So maybe for some people, it's sexism. For other people, it's homophobia. For others, it's racism. For some, it's all three, right? right? So how do we work through those messages from the outside without having them affect us in a way right, right that we can't see our full potential? The other end of that is, um, as we know in these times, and has always been true since the birth of our nation, is this idea of, well, I'm better than you, mm. based on those identities, right? right. Um, and therefore, you are less than, and in some ways, less human. We've mm-hmm. seen kind of this dehumanization, right, of people throughout history, and I think we're seeing that a lot more boldly, right, right in the last couple of years. So that's also a piece of my work. And that work then deals with the people who have privilege, which right. we all do, right? For me. To varying degrees. Yes, to varying yeah. degrees. So for me, like I, you know, grew up middle class. So therefore I'm I could be prone to engaging in classist thought and classist behavior. Right. Um so we all have something that we can work on. So for me, we all have something to work on. It's all different based right. on our identities. But in using that framework, I'm really for all students. Mm. And I'm hearing you talk about that in very individual tones, right? Mm -hmm. We all have work we can do with ourselves Mm -hmm. that sort of coming to an understanding of what that work is is facilitated by engaging with other people or with another person. But I'm wondering about from an institutional perspective, how can an institution support that? What are the types of structures or opportunities that you can put in place to facilitate that type of individual connection? Right, so you bring up a great point. It starts with you, but you don't see what that looks like unless you practice that with other people. Mm. So what I like to make a distinction um, from is that there's philosophy and there's practice, right? Mm. We all think that we're good people. You right. know, some of us believe that we're very progressive, um, but we may not engage with other people that demonstrates that because we're right. afraid to be called racist or we're afraid to say the wrong thing or we're mm-hmm. afraid to offend. Um, so those are the kinds of things that can be institutionalized. Those right. very human components. Like, I think growth is painful, mm. right? It's hard to grow. Um, everybody grew in middle school. I don't know anybody <laughs> who likes middle school, right? right. But we're all better for it. We're right. all, we all came out the other end. And so for me, when it comes to difficult conversations, you have to do that in community. Mm. And the ways in which we institutionalize it doesn't necessarily mean making it mandatory. That's a piece Mm. of it, you know, and those are great things like the no requirement. Um, I really think it takes faculty and staff to role model that. How can we ask things of our students that we're not able to demonstrate ourselves? And it's a fear that everybody has, no matter Mm -hmm. their age. I um, I don't think there's anybody who loves to talk about racism. I'm surely not one of them. I've grown comfortable with it. Right. Because I know that it's necessary. To, you can't solve a problem without talking about it. So I think right. those are the ways that we can institutionalize it. One, through role modeling, mm. right? But by requiring it on some end. Right. Not in terms of, like, mandatory classes. That's, again, a piece. But really, are we asking the right questions of our students? And are we treating them all with compassion? And you mentioned the no requirement. Yes. Will you explain just for our listeners what that is? Of course. So the no requirement happened before my time, and it's a um, it's a requirement that all students take 
um, a class that grapples with identity, knowledge, and power to some end, right? So these systems that I kind of like ran you through before, like sexism, Mm -hmm. right? Homophobia, even what does it mean to have a U.S kind of individualistic lens when you're thinking about people abroad. That's the no requirement, right? Um, How do we look at these systems? How we look at systems of of power and privilege and oppression? How do we connect that to ourselves? Mm. And then how do we take that into the world? Sure. And you mentioned also that you trained as a therapist. I did. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about what feels different or important or special to you about having these conversations on a college campus And in that context and how that's maybe different than having them in an individual relationship or having them even in the context of other bigger or smaller institutions. Sure. Um, I will tell you, Lena, that I hate public speaking. I hate it. (laughs) I prefer conversations like this. And for me, I became a therapist because um, so many of my friends who were uh, queer or people of color really had a tough time in therapy. Mm. And what that came down to is they didn't feel like that their their therapists resonated with their lived experience. So for me, I was like, well, then I'll do that, right? Hmm. I'll do that for, like, my what my friends didn't have. And yeah. I've always been somebody who people sought comfort in mm. or trust in or whatever, however you want to frame it. Sure. Um, so I went and I did that, and um, that was a time, and I ultimately— kept my values but changed my career trajectory. Mm -hmm. So what I do now, the difference I see is I'm more community-based. So many people, I mean, people end up in therapy for a variety of reasons. I'm very pro-therapy. If you think you should go, you should go. Um, (laughs) And it's free now, right? It's not free when you graduate. Right. Um, That is absolutely true. (laughs) So all about Chaz, good friends in Chaz. Um, But for me, there are a number of differences, right? One is like we talked about earlier, moving from an individual framework to a community-oriented framework. The other thing is that I noticed in my short stint in in training as a therapist is so many people are in therapy because they don't feel seen, they don't Mm. feel heard, they don't feel like they have a community. So how can I be more proactive in the work that I'm doing now? The other thing is I can be myself in a way that's very different you never really get to know your therapist, right? Mm. There really is like one and a half people in that room. And so for me, um, a a difference is that I can show up as myself. Sure, I can talk about the times that I've failed and Mm. that I've made missteps um, in my relationships with people who are the same or different than me. And I can role model that vulnerability in a way that you just can't as a therapist. Right. Um, There's some professional distance that exists. That that needs to be there. And for me, um, I can can frame that balance a little bit differently now. And in thinking about how you do that and how you really execute all of these different Mm -hmm. big ideas that we're talking about, what does just a typical day look like for you? What kinds of things do you do when you come to work? There is no typical day. There is no routine. And it just depends on what comes up. Yeah. So I I do still have um, individual conversations with students. And so I'll give you some some examples. Um, De-identified, of course, because I still believe in confidentiality. Please. Yes. So um, I've had, you know, young white men come to my office and say, you know, my my girlfriend's best friend thinks I'm sexist and I don't know who to talk to about that. Right. And so I'll just talk 
through these conversations with people or, you know, I am a woman of color and I'm the head of my student organization and um, people just think I got it because I'm a person of color, right? Uh, It's stressing me out. I want to talk to somebody about it. Yeah. And then there are kind of bigger things that happen, right? Um, Maybe somebody makes a misstep and it impacts somebody else's um, sense of belonging, uh, then those are different conversations too. So I meet with students who are affected by bias incidents, um, discrimination. I provide trainings for students and, and staff and faculty based on those topics, bias, racism, homophobia, all those things. And then I'm in a lot of meetings. <laughs> so um, I rarely have 15 minutes to myself. And I think something that keeps me on my feet is that every day is different, right. but every day is valuable because the core of why I trained to be a therapist and then why I switched into this work is is the same. And for somebody who likes answers, we haven't quite found the answer, right? right? And on how to be better to each other. So um, every day is different, but every day that's kind of my priority. And I... I wonder not to make an assumption about your life and your day, sure. but if one of the things that plays into that is you're affiliated with the Center for Intercultural and Civic Engagement, mm-hmm. which is a huge, the breadth of things that happen mm-hmm. at SICE is so huge. And I wonder if, does that play in at all to to you having just a big variety in your day is that there's a, a big stable of things to choose from? Yeah, to choose from or just have to get to, oh, right? Sure. You know, I do I do appreciate choice and sometimes it's not, but I chose this job, right? Yeah. And I chose why why I do it or it chose me rather. Um yeah, in you know, at my last school, the job that I have now was three separate jobs. Mm-hmm. I'm still trying to figure it out, right. right? And you know, I'm very aware that I can't do everything to the best of my ability, and to be okay with good enough is good enough. Yeah. But yeah, SICE does a lot. And it's going to be interesting to see how we change and we evolve as our student body continues right. to change or evolve, right? Um, we are few and we are mighty, um, but how are we going to utilize our student leaders um, in a way to leverage that platform, right? To be our spokespeople, Um so, yeah, we, we do a lot of different things, you know, traditional diversity or multicultural work like we talked about. Um, we do civic engagement work. So my colleague, Skylar Beal, and her team does that, which is getting out in the Tacoma community and having a mutually beneficial relationship with our city. And then Dave Wright is our university chaplain, and he does spiritual life, religious engagement, but also does a lot of high-level, confidential right. work with, you know, people who are experiencing suicidal ideation. So we are three, and then the person who really runs the ship is our office manager, Helen Fick is. <laughs> it's always the office manager <laughs> that runs everything. So we're really just four people, and we do a lot of things. And is there any crossover between these roles, or are you mostly all in those lanes yourselves? Uh, we're pretty much in those lanes, but I would very much say that we're a collective. Mm. So we collaborate on a lot of things, a lot of our student staff training um is the same as uh, Skylar and I oversee a workshop team of students together who peer teach those very issues like those those various isms if right. you will um and in Dave's interfaith coordinators are also on that that team because we realize that these issues very much are um 
part of a whole, mm-hmm. right? That I'm not just a woman. I'm not just Asian American. I'm both those things, right? Right. And I also have a spiritual identity. I also live in Tacoma. So we see people as a whole, and we that's what informs our perspective. Mm-hmm. We just take different perspectives to reach that ultimate goal, right? So. We have our areas of expertise, but I would say we're highly collaborative in nature. Probably one of the the most, I think, collaborative when you think about silos of people's expertise. In terms mm-hmm. of departments on campus? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's my yeah. impression also. And I think I think about sort of one big umbrella for all of those mm-hmm. areas. And I'm not sure if that actually is just because you are physically housed near each other on Mm -hmm. campus or because of some of those more institutional connections. But I oftentimes think of SICE as, well, there's a food pantry Mm -hmm. and alternative breaks come through Mm -hmm. SICE. And as you've mentioned, some of that identity-based training happens through SICE. Spiritual life happens through SICE. There's a single-use shower stall Mm -hmm. available. And so I think just the breadth, not just in terms of topic, but also in terms of big concept conversation all the way down to detail of somebody's life can exist in in these conversations and in this area. Right. Yeah. At the end of the day, it's about we're all working towards equity. Mm. We're all working towards um, getting, giving our students and working with them uh, to just be whole. Right. And to stand by who they are and be able to talk about who they are, but also give space for other people to inform that and to be in community with each other. So, again, the core values are very much the same. We just kind of take a different avenue to get there. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about some of the ways that you execute that. You've talked about Mm -hmm. some individual conversations and about some student leaders and some workshops. And Mm -hmm. just say a little more about what that looks like. Yeah, it's, um, sure, it's a lot. So I'm going to just pedal back. And I I think um, for me, it's really being able to pinpoint, okay, why is the United States the way that it is, right? Why are certain people? Why do certain people have a voice and why do certain people not, right? And how does that trickle down to what a campus environment looks like? Um, a campus is just a microcosm of of their area, of the nation, of the education system. And then I challenge people to think about, well, what's my role in that, mm. right? How, are I, how am I perpetuating these things or not? How am I benefiting from these things or not? And how do we learn to think critically, which is a very liberal arts thing, mm. and not just take things for face value? Right. Because that's what our parents believe. Like, mm. what do you believe, mm. right? And what's that founded on? So it's that self-reflection, mm. and then how do we practice that? It's quite simple at the end of the day. It just becomes really complicated because you are um, unlearning a lifetime <laughs> of stuff, and that can get really, really difficult and, and uncomfortable. And I think also it's sometimes scary to face up to the realization that, oh, these things I thought were truths maybe aren't. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that maybe some of that objectivity doesn't exist in the same way that I thought that it did. Of course. Or maybe it exists for me, but not everyone. And right. So what does that say about me and what I think mm. about other people? Yeah, it's it's really hard. And, and that's something that you know, you see and you train as a therapist is that a lot of times people are there because they're like, what I've been and what I'm doing just doesn't work for me anymore. Um, and what I'm doing now is like, for the most part, things are working for people, right? right. People who benefit from from just access and resources. Right. 
So then you're really trying to convince people to be like, well, are you willing to leverage some of that? Are you really ready to share some of those resources? And and that becomes, like you said, it becomes hard to face. Like if, mm-hmm. if you're moving away from one truth, what's going to be that new truth that you create? Right. We are wrapping up all of our conversations mm-hmm. with the same four questions of course. for everybody. That first question is, what's the best place on campus for you? I think it's the Yellow House. <laughs> um, because it, for many students, provides them a sense of family and community. And it does for me, too. Um, but, you know, office aside, I think the most beautiful place on campus that I've don't get to enough is Oppenheimer mm. Cafe. Yes, yes, Oppenheimer Cafe, not the okay. the residence hall. The residence hall. Two Oppenheimers like, on sure. campus. Okay, yeah, I don't go in the dorms. Yes, like, neither do I. Right. So <laughs> yeah. yeah, the cafe. I just such a beautiful. It's like beautiful as it is intimate. It's um, so incredibly unique. Um, but in terms of places I like to be. Mm. The Yellow House does provide me that sense of community and validation and framework and is a great is a great place. But for me, again, it's about the people. So as long as I'm with like my faculty who are friends, my uh, colleagues who are friends, my students who I care for, like that sense of favorite moves with whoever I'm around. What are you reading right now? I just finished Michelle Obama's Becoming because I, loved I Michelle Obama's yes, Becoming. Yes, because I was so fortunate to see her when she came to the Tacoma Dome. So oh, I was like, well, wow. got to do my homework and read this first. <laughs> um, so I finished that. And then a colleague referred me to a book called The Age of Overwhelm. Mm. Um, and I read that more for my understanding of others, but of course— from time to time, the work that I do becomes very overwhelming. And so just thinking about um, strategies and ways to ad- guide others, advise others of, you know, making sure that they don't feel overwhelmed right. and what are the things that you could say no to and mm. the things that really um, – and keeping the things that really make you feel fulfilled. What's the best place to eat in Tacoma? It depends on the genre of food because I love to eat, but I will say I probably love lasagna as much as Garfield. And <laughs> my favorite place for lasagna is Marzano's, which is right by PLU's campus. Mm-hmm. Uh, for seafood, I like the fish peddler. Um, for ice cream, there's only ice cream social for me. That's it. <laughs> I think it's better than Molly Moon's. I actually think it's even better than Byright and Salt and Straw. Um, so that's it, it. Makes it sound like I just eat lasagna and ice cream <laughs> and, and seafood, but I those will be my top three. Do you have a favorite flavor at Ice Cream Social? I always, I'm the person who samples like 10 things. You stand in line and and then And then I'll always go with the cookies and cream. You always come back to cookies and cream. Right, yeah. Sometimes I'll do like a scoop of that and a scoop of something else. Right, and at Ice Cream Mm -hmm. Social, you can divide a single scoop in half. So that's a nice perk. Right, it is a nice perk. And then, you know, some of the best seasonal pumpkin ice cream I've ever had. I eat a lot of ice cream. (laughs) (laughs) So their pumpkin's also great. And lastly, what makes Puget Sound special? Yeah, just circling back to the beginning, I think that we're honest and mm. we're authentic and we uh, we are willing to grow, mm. you know, and, and, and that's always appealed to me and that still rings true and that kind of 
keeps me here. Because, like, yeah, my job is hard. Like, I don't know. Sometimes I'm like, <laughs> why did I choose something where there's, like, have been no answers to in the last 200 years? But what keeps me going is really that community and that desire to be better as people and to be better uh, to each other. Thank you for coming to talk with me today. Thank you so much for having me. I really had a good time with you. Likewise. Ever wonder what repelling, a research symposium, and different types of moss have in common? I'm Tori Henson, Assistant Director of Admission and Transfer Admission Coordinator at Puget Sound, and you can go to pugetsound.edu stories to find out the answer. Thank you to our guest and to you, the listener. You can follow Puget Sound on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at UNIV, U-N-I-V, Puget Sound. And we hope you'll join us next time for another episode of P.S., the Puget Sound Podcast. Podcast.